happening, blues people? This is Lamont Jack Burley. You know me as Jack Dapper Blues from Jack Dapper Blues Radio, Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Podcast, as well as Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation, which is the pretty much that's the helm of everything that we do here. Now, Jack Dapper Blues Radio is our station, and this is one of our programming. This is more of a, I would say, when I say serious program, I mean, it's more formal. And this program is called The African American Folklorist. And on this program, we are going to talk about, discuss, raise awareness, and celebrate those that made significant contributions to African American history, culture, and traditions, as well as American history, culture, and traditions. So we're going to speak about people that are rarely discussed those who aren't celebrated as often as they should or those who are known in the scholastic or scholarly industry but not the everyday person would know about these african-american people that again made great contributions and this particular series is about Charlotte Fortin Grimke. Now, I spoke with a ethnomusicologist and folklorist who's made a name of himself during the blues revival, Mr. Dave Evans, in a prior interview, and he referred to Charlotte Fortin Grimke as the grandmother of collectors and folklorists and even ethnomusicologists. Why did he refer to her as that? And what was one of the significant things that she's done? Well, as you know, all of my platform raises awareness in regards to African-American traditional music and the Black experience. Charlotte Fortin Gremke is documented as being the first person to document and record Black spirituals when she made an excursion to St. Helena Island did a journal, I believe it was called Life on Sea Island. We're going to discuss all of this in the series. But one of the things that I found that much more interesting than even just her accomplishments was the people that were in line to kind of mold her to who she is, not taking anything away from her. But we're going to be spending a lot of time discussing the people in her life, the people who planted seeds, her family, friends, relatives, people who married into her family. She comes from three generations of abolitionists, right, entrepreneurs, and freed black folk. Now, just as a disclaimer, I will be using the term black, black folk, African-American, and things of this nature. That's going to be another series. When we discuss those terminologies as it regards to what we consider native, right? Because we are native to this land, African-American, which is a term given to us, Afro-American, and all of the above. But that's on a later date. But on this particular series, we'll be discussing Charlotte, and we'll be discussing her family and all the people that she either came in contact with or raised her. And we're going to be discussing what turns out to be a very sad story, okay? I'm going to give you a, a, a little, I don't want to get in front of myself, but her story can be considered sad for the simple fact that she got really sick on that excursion on St. Helena Island, physically, uh, spiritually, mentally. She found it very difficult to relate to the natives. 
she found that they only spoke Gullah and they were unfamiliar with what could be referred to as the protocol of classroom and learning. Um, she couldn't relate to them on several uh, fronts. And it turned out she related more to the white teachers than she did to her own people that this free black woman made this very dangerous excursion to go down there and teach. Now, that's another thing that I would like to say in this uh, beginning of her of, of the series. When the slaves were first freed, she made an excursion down there because in her mind, her battle was, her fight was, she was going down there to prove that they can learn. She was a progressive, so she was going down there to teach them so they could be self-sufficient, educated and self-sufficient. Sufficient, okay, but she found that she could not relate. Okay, so we're going to be discussing that in the series. We're also going to discuss the journal entries that she wrote starting at 16, as well as the journals that she wrote during the time on Sea Island. Okay, now to understand her again, we must understand not just the people, but where her story originates. And the story originates with her grandfather to a degree. Okay, and I say to a degree because, yes, he started, he laid the foundation in Philadelphia. But you'll see as I go into this uh, particular episode of this series, why it doesn't just start with him, but also why Philadelphia is an extremely important place for her development and psyche. And we're going to get to it right now after this segment. On the upcoming episode of the African-American Folklorist Kids, Samara Purley and Lamont Purley Jr. share with us games African-American children played on plantations. My name is Lamont Purley Jr. reporting for the African-American Folklorist Kids. The game I'm covering is called Smut, which is a game where you take pieces of corn, write numbers on them, then try to mash them together. It's similar to Go Fish. My name is Samara Pearlie, reporting for the African American Folklorist Kids. The game I am covering is called Hide the Switch. Where someone hides the switch, everyone looks for it, and the one who finds it tries to hit the other kids. It is similar to Tag Meets Hide and Seek. Okay, so at age of 16, having been denied admission to the city's white schools, Charlotte moved to Salem, Massachusetts to attend a private school as the only African-American among the school's 200 students. Now this here also, I don't want to get too much into her father yet, but her father plays a big role in that move right there. But we're going to save the father to episode two, okay? Continuing her family's abolitionist work, she soon joined Salem's female anti-slavery society and became acquainted with many of the leading black and white abolitionists of the time, okay? Now, remember what I said early on. She began her journal, at least as far as I've gotten right now, I'm quite sure she was pinning a journal long before this based on her upbringing and the type of person she was. But it is documented that at age 16, when she arrived to Salem and began school, she began pinning a journal there as well. I, I did mention this in the intro, and we're going to talk about that one in particularly because that particular journal was covering a societal, a governmental, a law 
where a black man was being charged a fugitive slave law, right? So she began pinning in her journal about the fugitive slave law based on a case that was going on at this time currently for her and what was happening and how it played out. She was very, very vocal about how she felt about this. Now, Charlotte Fortin graduated from the Higginson School in February of 1855. To prepare for a career as a teacher, she entered the Salem Normal School, okay? In 1864, she published Life on the Sea Island in the Atlantic Monthly, which brought the work of the Port Royal Experiment to the attention of Northern readers. Why is that important? See, all these things connect. It's very important because though there was an African-American experience on this land, and I refer to it as this land because in the mid-1700s to the early mid-1800s is when America, the United States of America, and their laws and Congress and things of that nature was really beginning to be established. So now, with that being said, you have free blacks. Charlotte and her family were free blacks. You had Jim Crow antebellum South blacks, as well, African Americans, as well as whites, okay? Now, this is very important because it's not just northern blacks and southern blacks and southeast and southwest blacks but it's also northern whites southern whites midwestern whites etc etc so on and so forth and though a lot of people shared same the same theologies the location the the geography where these people were located and the societies of these locations operated extremely differently Okay, I would go as far as saying Charlotte may have had similar experiences to W.E.B. Du Bois rather than the experiences of a Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington. Okay, so bringing the, the attention of her experiences on the Sea Island to Northern readers kind of hits, at least to me and based on my work, research and studies, that a lot of Northerners were unaware of the lifestyle of the South. Right. There were a lot of those out of the South during the many migrations that took place that wanted to forget and leave behind everything that had to do with the antebellum South and the Jim Crow South and the Reconstruction South and things of this nature. But it was different vibes, for lack of a better term. Right. I recently did an interview with a community activist here in New York City and Robert Kimbrough Jr. So uh, actually I was interviewing Robert Kimbrough Jr. And the topic that day, uh, a friend of mine who is a uh, activist and a football coach in Brooklyn, New York, Hans Joseph calls in. So we're having this discussion about uh, African Americans, about how black people are treated in America and what happens. Uh, yet again, it's confirmed that not only do we share similar situations, it's a different, not necessarily mindset, but it's a different vibe, right? It's a, it's, it's a different vibe. There's different vernaculars. One, you know, things that are said here mean different things down there or over there, right? Or across there. And it's the same thing on how the cities and towns operate, okay? And that's also 
one of the driving forces of why this free woman going down to the sea island found it difficult to relate, identify, or even create a bond with her brothers and sisters of the South. Okay, so as she began teaching, now I mentioned this before, she found that many of her pupils spoke only Gullah and were unfamiliar with the routines of school. Though she yearned to feel a bond with the islanders, her temperament, upbringing, and education set her apart, and she found she had more in common with white abolitionists than her people. So now, we also have to understand, and there's, there's some people who try to play the game that class and education is what separates everybody, and not necessarily a race or skin color. I, I would possibly agree with that if it wasn't for the expansion of slavery, slavery to begin with, and white supremacy. Okay, and this is not hate speech, this is the actual truth. Okay, so now we have two representations of black people. Okay, Charlotte, and, and what's really important, and I, I keep driving this point home, Charlotte understood what it was to be free because she had four generations of freedom, okay? And we also have to understand, and we're going to talk about this, where the freedom comes from. It wasn't just her grandfather, right? You want to ask the question, where did the freedom come from? Who was the first free person were they, in her family, that is? Were they born free, or did they get to a certain age and buy their freedom? And if they were able to buy their freedom... How are they able to reprogram their brain so that they will be a free person mentally in order to be a free person physically and then pass down that mindset and spirit of freedom? That's what, for me, is really important about this story because she had the mindset of freedom that was passed down for many generations, okay? Now, under these physical and emotional stresses that Charlotte experienced on Sea Island, she began to become very frail. She grew ill, and after two years, she left St. Helena Island, and she never quite recovered after that, okay? Now, we're going to speak about a lot of people in her family. Again, her husband and her aunts and uncles who continued the works. We'll get to them in other episodes. So now... Where do we start, right? Because as I've said many times about her family, I've said many times that the location of her origin is very important. Why is the location of her origin very important? Well, let's get to that right now, okay? She was born in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is a pivotal place and point of reference, because Philadelphia is the home of the first abolitionist society, the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery and for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage and for Improving the Conditions of the African Race. This is really really important to the mindset of Charlotte, especially if you want to start with something. Look, just in regards to it being the first place in the home of promoting the abolition of slavery. And then when she gets to Salem at 16, the first thing she does is joins the Salem Female Anti-Slavery Society, right? Now, let's talk about 
the relief of free Negroes unlawfully held in bondage. And then one of the first things she journals is about the Fugitive Slave Act in law, based on a particular case that was going on while she was there in school. You see how these things connect, right? Now, we also have to, we have to think about something here now. I don't know if any of you read any of her journal entries from 16 to adulthood, but the things she wrote about and thought about, one would say, I don't want to say one would have to say, one may say that these aren't the thoughts of the average black person, or at least the average black person oppressed, enslaved, or living under antebellum South Jim Crow and all these other obstacles, right? And you would be correct. Again, we're going to have an episode, an upcoming episode in this series where we just go over her her journal and the things she wrote, not just about those experiences, but she also writes about how she feels about different locations, how she feels. She's a very outgoing person. Uh, she, she connects and likes nature. She writes about these things, okay? Now, her family were the town's heavy hitters in the fight against slavery and the education of African-American people, okay? Her immediate families as well as her in-laws, okay? And on top of that, her relatives were known to house underground railroad families that passed through Philadelphia on their way to freedom. They taught them trades and they promoted education and gave them something to take on their journey so that when they get to their destination, they can set up shop. Now, William still is part of this story, okay? William Still is part of this story because remember, William Still writes slave narratives of the Underground Railroad. And he was also part of the same organization that her family were members of, and not just members, but held high ranking positions. Okay, so now, James Fortin, okay, I mentioned her grandfather on a couple of occasions, right? James Fortin and Charlotte Fortin, that was Charlotte's grandparents. Okay, if I'm not mistaken, James Fortin bought Charlotte Fortin, his wife, out of slavery, okay? They were wealthy African Americans. James was born a free black man. He attended the Anthony Benedict's Quaker Negro School in Philadelphia. Here's another name. Here's another organization. What does this have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with everything, okay? Again, James Fortin, okay, attended Anthony Benedict's Quaker Negro School in Philadelphia. Benedict was the founder of the Philadelphia Abolitionist Society and the founder of the Quaker School. Okay, in 1800, he was the leader in organizing a petition that called for Congress to emancipate all slaves. Now remember, public schools for Negroes were not established until around 1822, when the Bird School, now known as the James Fortin School, was opened on 6th Street in Philadelphia. Okay, now in 1822 is when the first Negro public school was established. I'm repeating this because you have to understand James Fortin, if I'm not mistaken, and we're going to go back into this in a bit because we want to speak about a couple of other people, but James Fortin was born in 1766. Okay, you get the point. Now, before we go back into James Fortin, 
W.E.B. Du Bois credits Benezet and the organization he belonged to known as the Friends of Philadelphia for being the first to recognize that in order for true progression and success of the state, which is Pennsylvania, they must demand the education of the Negro, okay? On the 26th of January, 1770, at the Philadelphia Monthly Meeting of Friends, the general situation of the Negroes, and especially the free Negroes, were discussed. Now, it's believed that Anthony Benezet brought this to the table, that instruction and education must be provided for Negro children. Not should be, must be. They came to an agreement and decided not to teach more at one time than 30 children in its first rudiment of school learning and in sewing and knitting. So now they're giving them the basic education of reading, writing, arithmetic, right? But they're also teaching them trade. And notice that public school was mentioned. You got to notice that they decided no more than 30 students per class. And now public schools have at least 30 students per class, right? And at one time they were getting reading, writing, math, arithmetic, and trade. Okay? Because as you know, if you could read, you could write, you could do math, and then you learn to trade, you can open a business, Yes, I'm a big fan of Booker T. Washington, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Okay, so now, after coming to this agreement, okay, they gave the children of free Negroes and mulattoes the preference and the opportunity of being taught clear of expense to their parents. So now we're talking about they're getting a free education. Okay, so they were serious about freeing blacks, educating blacks, african-americans right and then allowing them to get a leg up to get a footing let me rephrase that not allowing them but assisting former slaves current free black folk to get a footing so they'll be able to circulate economics around their community right this is not new okay so the school opened june 28 1770 with 22 colored children in attendance and from 1770 to 1775 250 children and grown persons were instructed there however the attendance declined and some believe it was because of the war right the revolutionary war Okay, and this is very, that's very important also because now we're talking about the end of international slave trade. We're talking about the separation of the colonies from Europe, right? And we're talking about the expansion of slavery on this land. Now we're talking about the domestic slave trade that actually is what made America the power structure that at least once was. Okay, we're talking about capitalism on E, on 10, on 100, on extreme, right? So this is what's going on during the time that this school, the Quaker School for Negroes, was going on, okay? And by 1775, five colored children and some white children were in attendance. Now, this is where it gets funky. And why does it get funky? Because of what I just told you. Directly after the Revolutionary War, things changed on this land, okay? And after the war, 
Benazit had to hold secret classes in his living room. Why did he have to hold secret classes in his living room after the war? Because the expansion of slavery was on the rise. And what is the expansion of slavery? Not international, domestic, okay, land speculation, northern bankers, southern plantation owners saw it as a great business to expand slavery, go speculate on lands, start buying lands, making slave states where they can house their property, which is, which was the slaves and their product, right? Okay. So before we get to all that, because what I just explained to you, just to set up the scene and what was going on, the terrain while these things were happening. So now we want to know who Anthony Benezet was, okay? Anthony Benezet was a Quaker teacher, a writer and abolitionist. Okay, he had big influence on Thomas Clarkson. He was born to a Huguenot family in France. I don't know if many of you know the history behind the Huguenots, the Protestants, France, London, and a lot of these people that fell under the Huguenot theology had to run for their lives. A lot of them fled here to America, as did Anthony Benezet and his family after fleeing to London. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they subscribed to the theology of Martin Luther, okay? Okay, so that's from his beginning. He One of the things he did, at least here, was he worked to convince other Quakers that slave owning was against Christian teaching. And in 1754, he also set up the first public school for girls in America. Now, he was an avid opponent of slavery. His influence on the British abolition movement was very great. He campaigned for the Quaker headquarters in London to denounce slavery and wrote and published at his own expense, a number of anti-slavery tracts and pamphlets. His pamphlet, Some Historical Accounts About Guinea, written in 1772, was read by John Wesley and his appeal to the British legal system. Okay? Now, again, this is Anthony Benezet, and he is the founder of the Quaker School for Negroes, and he was the one who brought to the Friends of uh, the Friends of Philadelphia, that Negroes, free, especially free Negroes, needs to be educated, okay? So this is the same person, okay? Now, Benezet was also the founder of the Philadelphia Abolitionist Society. And remember I said the Philadelphia Abolitionist Society was the first abolitionist society, at least documented and recorded, right? Now, he also wrote to Queen Charlotte, encouraging her to consider the plight of the enslaved. And now this is very important because we know Queen Charlotte was a black woman. We also know she is descendant of Hebrew because her father was a Hebrew, right? There was Ben in his name. His Her father was a Hebrew. This is documented, folks. I'm not making this up. He was a black man and he was a Hebrew, okay? Now, Anthony Benazit also would accept a student that would be the beginning of the Fortin movement, which is James Fortin. Okay, why is he the beginning of the Fortin movement? Well, let's get into his story now. I gave you a little bit of, of, of his background, but let's get into his story. James Fortin was born September 2nd, 
1766. He was a very successful black businessman, inventor, and abolitionist, okay? Coming from Philadelphia and born to free parents, or born of free parents, Thomas and Sarah Fortin. His great-grandfather had been brought to America as a slave, yet his grandfather had obtained his own freedom. I'm going to repeat that. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> he was born to free parents, Thomas and Sarah Fortin. His great-grandfather had been brought to America as a slave, but, however, yet his grandfather had obtained his own freedom. Okay, and this is very, very, very important because you have to understand we're still surrounded by people walking around with a slave mentality and they were never physically slaves. Okay. So now we're talking about someone who obtained his freedom out of bondage and was able to pass something down to spark, to grow a seed that James Fortin, by the time he gets to a certain age, he understands freedom fully because he was born free. Okay, so James and his parents had always been free. And at the age of 15, James enlisted in the Continental Army as a powder boy. Okay, he was serving on a ship which was captured by an English ship commanded by Sir John Beasley. He became good friends with the captain's son and they played the game of marbles together. Okay, so now Sir John was so impressed with James Fortin, he offered to take him back with him to England to provide an education to assist him in entering a profession. But James wanted to come back and stay in America. Sir John's son saved James from being captured and possibly sold as a slave. James Fortin later says, Thus did a game of marble save me from a life of West Indian servitude. I think that says a lot. Because remember, we're also talking about the time of sugarcane, the sugar industry, right? And the sugar industry was big in London, in Britain, which means that the West Indies at that time was the go-to and where a lot of, of slave labor and slave camps was was built and constructed, even though the colonies here had slaves, okay? So now, after being part of a crew captured by the British and spending seven months in prison, he returned to America and worked as a sailmaker for a man named Robert Bridges. Upon the death of his employer, James Fortin bought the company and as an inventor slash entrepreneur of a sail handling device, he built a highly successful business. He was among those in the city of brotherly love who formed the independent Bethel AME Church in 1787. Now, yet again, I just want to set the tone. I want to set the scene because now you have to understand, I already told you about the expansion of slavery after the Revolutionary War. So now we're in the 1780s, okay? And the 1780s not only brought the expansion of slavery, it also, there was a lot of, of conflict within the different sects of America and there was a lot of things going on and in that laid room and foundation for the Coffle gangs and the Georgia man 
Okay, the Kafel gangs are extremely important because the Kafel gangs was the way they were the way the Georgia men were bringing slaves from one end of America to the slave states. So they were walking 17 to 20 hours a day. And don't be fooled, George Washington and his family, especially over here in Mount Vernon, had slaves and they were part of this new slave industry where the Georgia men would ride up there, collect their slaves and other slaves along the way and take them down to Maryland, Virginia, Georgia, okay, where the boom of this business began, the domestic slave trade, the, the, the expansion of slavery. That's going to be another full series, but I just want to set the, the, the tone and the scene that what this a free black man was doing and what was going on during the time he was doing this, okay? Which is the reason why I just insert some of these things. Now, we also have to remember James Fortin was an influential figure in the fight against slavery, right? I've said several times in this initial broadcast, and I say initial, this is episode one of Charlotte Fortin Grimke, that she comes from many generations of abolitionists. So her grandfather was an influential figure in this fight, okay? It was he who convinced William Lloyd Garrison, right, of the ill of the European colonization. William Lloyd Garrison, this name is very important, okay? It's important to abolition, and it's also important to Charlotte because when Charlotte moves to Massachusetts, right, at 16, she lives with Charles Lennox Raymond, who is the most prominent Negro follower of this same William Lloyd Garrison. So she comes out of the Lloyd Garrison camp. And oddly enough, Lloyd Garrison was funded by Charlotte's grandfather. Okay, considering he bought several newspapers in order to publish his own writings, and one of those newspapers happened to be The Liberator, which was run by the anti-slavery activist and advocate William Lloyd Garrison, who wrote, wrote, and wrote about the woes of slavery. He fought the woes of slavery. This is it's all. I hope this is all coming together, okay? And that's for another example of how her achievements and contributions to African-American history was molded and shaped for generations, okay? And again, not to minimize her works, all right? Now, James was equally forceful in leading the resistance to the state of Pennsylvania's attempt to restrict the immigration of blacks from the South. Let's just make sure you understand what I said. James was equally forceful in leading the resistance to the state of Pennsylvania's attempt to restrict the immigration of blacks from the South. Yes, we're talking about a great migration. See, let me just explain something, because what, what happens in history, or the sharing of history, or the business of history, most people think, well, there was just three migrations, starting in 1914, uh, 1915, you know, or 1911, 1917, then you have the next one that's like from 1935 to 1950, or 1945 to 1950, then you have the third one, which is the late 60s, early 70s, you know, and blah, blah, this, and blah, blah, that. Mind you, now, they forget that 
what's considered the second migration, there's two to three uh, parts to that, right? Because you have from the South to the Chicago, Detroit, Midwest area, but you also have the Blacks from the South and the Mid-South, it's like the Arizona area and places like this, that they go straight West, right? So we, we have these Black folk that go from the South deep south and texas arizona area and they they're going fully west so now they're in seattle they're in california right and 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 they're building communities there okay and that's like great migration to b <laughs> you know two in the letter b right because the great migration two is really considered going from uh, rural to urban, not just going to the Northeast or going to the Midwest and things like this. But then they don't talk about the migrations of the 1800s, the migrations of the late 1700s, the migrations of the late 1800s at all. They, they start with 1914. Okay. So now with that being said, that's what he was talking about. That's what he was against. The restriction of the immigration of blacks from the South coming up to Philadelphia, New York, and these places, okay? Now, Fortin used his wealth and influence to assist in shaping the black abolitionist movement, okay? Church protesting movement. He was protesting and utilized his church or along with his church protesting the American Colonization Society attempt to send blacks back to Africa. Let me just say this again. Let me say this one more time to be really clear. Because he was he was against at one time he was for, but he was against the American Colonization Society's attempt to send blacks back to Africa. Why? 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 Many African Americans were fleeing to Philadelphia searching for freedom. Okay? There was a movement called the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color of America or the American Colonization Society. Okay? Their aim was to relocate the free blacks of America to Liberia in Africa. At first, Fortin favored the idea, but he realized the majority of blacks were against it. Why were they against it? Why were they against it? Why do you think they were against it? Because they knew where they originated. You have to understand, as much as it's said about Columbus and this one and that one and the red man, and th th there were black folk on this land well before 1300. I would, you know, I would go as far as saying, which is documented, okay, is documented before the continents separated, there were black people here, okay? Who those black people were in regards to tribal, that's for a different broadcast, but there were black people here, okay? They, matter of fact, we can go as far as discussing what's documented in regards to Columbus, who who and what he was really looking for in his journals and what he found when he got here and what Bibles they had and how they looked, right? We can also discuss the Moors who were known salesmen, okay? They came here way before this dude and who the Moors saw here and who they were businessing with here and the Bibles they had here. 
Okay, so I say that not to throw shade, sensationalize, or polarize. I say that to say the reason he found that there were many black people that were not in favor of the idea of being sent to Liberia and Africa is because they know that they originated on this land. Okay, that's why I say that. And again, we're going to address that in other uh, series for the African-American folklorists as well. Okay. Now, in 1813, he wrote a pamphlet called Letters from a Man of Color, in which he urged free blacks to claim their rights to live as free citizens in America. And in 1817, his speech at the Bethel AME Church protesting the American colonization society's attempt to send blacks back to Africa was a strong stance. No, no, this is gets good. And, you know, we're really just touching the surface of a lot, okay? Because what you're going to find as we go through all these different people in Charlotte's uh, life and in Charlotte's series of the African-American folklorists, and then when I cover other people, families, in different times and things, you're going to see the connections of all this, when I say the connections of all this, again, we're talking about 1817, and he's making speeches like this, and, and what was going on in, in America in 1817 in regards to black people, in regards to free black people, and in regards to enslaved black people, okay? And what was going on in New Orleans, Louisiana, Mississippi, and in New Hampshire, Okay? as well as South Carolina and Florida. It's all relative. Now, Fortin married Charlotte Van Dyne, and they raised eight children. He was not able to enroll his eight children in white schools, so he hired tutors to educate them. At one time, he opened his own homeschool as a homeschool for African-American children. A Philadelphia school was named for him, as we spoke about earlier. Three of his daughters, Margarita, Harriet, and Sarah, when they were adults, were active in the abolitionist movement. Among their husbands and other people that were connected or influenced by James Fortin. James Fortin died on March 4th, 1842, at the age of 66. Man, he lived a, a, a long life of, you know... I mean, he gave it all. <laughs> so, we're just getting started. We're just touching the, the surface. Okay, next, we're going to start with Charlotte's father and some of her aunts. And we're going to get some more of the story. Until then, pick up a book, read, read with your family. Learn about your traditions, heritage, and what was passed down. Okay, and while you're doing it, as you listen to my broadcasts, whether it's this one, Jack Dapper Blues, or read anything, any of my content or content contributed to my platform, see if it aligns with your family. Because we, what we're doing is not just raising awareness of African American traditional music in the Black experience. We're reclaiming our narrative. Okay, we're telling our story. 